Hebrews chapter 10, get there. The title of this message this morning is The Horror of Apostasy. We have before us this morning one of the most difficult texts in all the New Testament. Difficult to understand, hotly contested as to the interpretation, and we have to deal with it this morning. We're just moving through the book of Hebrews verse by verse. We find ourselves in Hebrews chapter 10. Before we even read it, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for the church. Thank you for this thing that you birthed, this thing that you created, the church. Thank you for pouring out your Holy Spirit on the church that we might be spirit-filled, living, active members of your community. Thank you that you bring us together in love and we get to come and experience your love and love for one another. We thank you for that wonderful thing. And Lord, we ask that this morning you would do a good work in our hearts. We ask that you would align our hearts with your word. Thank you for your word, Lord. It's inerrant. It's infallible. It is active and living and absolutely authoritative. It is right and righteous. And this morning the passage before us is somewhat difficult. And so we ask that you give us understanding. We ask the Holy Spirit you would come and teach us. Thank you that you're a teacher of all things. Lead us into correct interpretation, Lord. Don't let us err and give us humble hearts and submit to what your word says, no matter how much we may be challenged by it. So speak to us, do a work in us, Lord. We ask it together in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, brothers and sisters, the horror of apostasy. Let's start reading in verse 26 of Hebrews 10. It says in verse 26, For if we go on sinning willfully... After receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. What a doozy of a text for Thanksgiving weekend, huh? (laughs) Way to start December. Listen, uh, does anybody here sin? Okay, so we have some Christians here that sin, right? Anybody here sin more than they want to? Okay. Anybody here ever sin willfully like you, you know you shouldn't do it and you decide to do it and you go after it and you do it. Anybody ever sin that way? Okay, verse 26 should trouble you. Verse 26 should trouble you. It says, for if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a certain terrifying expectation of judgment. Now, This is a difficult text. And I want to share with you guys some things that you ought to do, we should do, when we encounter a difficult text. Three things that we need to keep in mind the moment we come across a difficult text. 
Number one, we must keep in mind the context. Number two, we must keep in mind other texts. And number three, we must keep in mind the whole text. If we keep in mind the context, other texts, and the whole text, then we will have a foot up on gaining a correct interpretation of any difficult passage. And so this one before us, we need to keep in mind the context. It says there, if we go on sinning willfully, there remains no sacrifice. What could this mean? Well, let's bring to remembrance the context of the book. One of the important things that helps you determine context is by realizing why a certain book was written. We know that Hebrews was written to encourage, warn, and strengthen Christians who were drifting. Correct? We belabored that point. The book of Hebrews is written to encourage, warn, strengthen, drifting Christians. Christians who had encountered a governmental persecution under the Roman Empire. It was hard for them to be a Christian at this time in history. And because it was so difficult, some of them were drifting away from the faith. And so the book was written to encourage them to cling to the faith, to hold fast, and not to fall away. So that's the broad context for the book. It helps us when determining context for a specific passage to remember the flow of the book. And here's what we have in the flow of Hebrews. We have Christology interspersed with harsh warnings and warm encouragements. Christology, in other words, the theology of Jesus Christ, interspersed with harsh warnings and warm encouragement. That's what we find in the ebb and the flow of the book of Hebrews. A very careful study of the person of Christ with some very poignant warnings about these Christians' relationship to him. Let's look at a few of these warnings. There's several of them in the book. Turn to chapter 2 with me. Hebrews chapter 2. Let's look at the first three verses at the first warning. Chapter 1 is unpacking the person of Jesus Christ and rich Christology there. And then chapter 2, we have this first warning in verse 1. For this reason, in other words, because of the right identification of Jesus Christ, for this reason, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. There's a key word in the book of Hebrews, drift. Verse 2 For if the word spoken through angels proved unalterable, that's talking about the old covenant, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? There's that warning. That in the Old Testament, with regards to the old covenant, people were held accountable to their interaction with it. How much more will those who have been given the new covenant be held accountable if they neglect so great a salvation? So we have that warning. The next one comes quickly on the heels of the first chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. Another warning here. Hebrews 3.12 says, Take care, brethren, lest there should be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart in falling away, another key word in the book, in falling away from the living God. 
but encourage one another day after day as long as it is still called today, lest any one of you should be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers of Christ if we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm until the end. And then a few chapters later in chapter 6, we have that doozy of a warning about which there was much controversy. Hebrews chapter 6, starting in verse 4. For in the case of those who have once been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance since they again crucified to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. Verse 7, For the ground that drinks a rain which often falls upon it and brings forth vegetation useful to those for whose sake it was also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. Pretty radical warning against sticking with Jesus and not falling away. And then he encourages them in the very next breath in verse 9. He says, But beloved... We are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking this way. For God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end, that you may not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So there we have a radical warning against the danger of falling away correctly in the passage, the danger of apostasy. We studied it at length. If you have questions about that passage or the interpretation thereof, you can go on the website and get those messages. In chapter 12, we have another warning. Chapter 12, starting in verse 25. It says, see to, see to it that you do not refuse him, speaking of God, who is speaking. For if those did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from him who warns from heaven. And his voice shook the earth then, but now he is promising yet once more, and I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. And this expression, yes, yet once more, denotes the removing of those things which can be shaken, as of created things, in order that those things which cannot be shaken may remain. Therefore, since we receive a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude, by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. So here we have this book which is full of rich Christology, right theology about the person of Jesus Christ, and interspersed with these warnings to act rightly with regards to who Jesus is, and also some occasional encouragements. Now, if we look at the broad context and the minutiae of the book, it's very clear to us that it's written to Christians. That's who this book is speaking to. It's very clear that they were in a state of drifting 
and in danger of falling away. We read that explicitly. And this sort of warning that we read in Hebrews chapter 10 is congruent with the rest of the tone in the tenor of the book. So when we look at context, those are the results that we immediately get when thinking about verse 26. It's addressed to Christians. It's addressed to Christians who are in a state of drifting and in danger of falling away. And it's a warning that has been repeated throughout the book. Having looked at the context now, starting to get a grasp on the passage, we want to think about other texts. When encountering a difficult text, keep in mind the context and other texts. In other words, let Scripture interpret Scripture. Now, as I read verse 26, I was equally troubled by it, but some passages came to mind immediately. That's why it's so important that you read the Bible, that you know the Word of God, so that you have a point of reference to begin to be able to deal with these things. So immediately what came to my mind was Romans 5.20. Remembering here, verse 26, if we go on sinning willfully, there no longer remains a sacrifice. But what about Romans 5.20? which says the law came in so that transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Where sin abounds, grace abounds. We like that verse much more than Hebrews 10.26. That sounds better for our lives. Where sin is abounding, grace is super abounding. And so now we take that into stock when approaching an interpretation of Hebrews 10. The next verse that came to my mind that I jotted down was 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 and 9. It says, if we say that we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. In other words, we sin. Verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. We like that one more than Hebrews 10, 26. That sounds good to us. When I confess my sin, he forgives me and he cleanses me. So good to be cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Amen? Amen. The next one that came to my mind that really helps us is 1 John 2, 1. It says, My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. I like that. I don't want to sin. And then it says in the next sentence, But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus Christ is our representative, our intercessor, our high priest, so that when we do sin, he bears the wounds of his payment for us on the cross. And we are covered, amen, by his work on the cross. And so these texts that immediately come to mind when approaching Hebrews 10, 26, seem to indicate very clearly that there is forgiveness for the Christian who still sins. In fact, the New Testament protocol for the Christian who's sinning is to restore them. Galatians 6, 1, if any of you is caught in any trespass, you who are spiritual, restore such a one in the spirit of gentleness, looking to yourself, lest ye too be tempted. And so the protocol for the sinning Christian is that we restore one another. There is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. So what in the world then is this verse saying? Well, here's another passage that came to my mind. I love reading the Old Testament. I'm somewhat familiar with it. Numbers chapter 15 came to mind. Now, Numbers 15 tells us something that is an oft overlooked fact about the Old Covenant, and that's this. 
In the Old Covenant, God made provision to cover sins through animal sacrifices, but only for unintentional sins. Sins that were purposeful, sins that were transgression, or often called high-handed sinning, God made no provision for that in the Old Covenant. There was no sacrifice to cover that sin. God didn't provide for it. At times, He did give mercy to His people because He's a merciful God. But the Old Covenant consisted of animal sacrifices to cover unintentional sins, but not willful disobedience. And we see that in Numbers 15. It reads, it starting in verse 29. You shall have one law for him who does anything unintentionally. For him who is native among the sons of Israel and for the alien who sojourns among them. But the person who does anything defiantly, high-handedly it's sometimes said, whether he's a native or an alien, this one is blaspheming the Lord. And that person shall be cut off from among his people because he has despised the word of the Lord and has broken his commandment. That person shall be completely cut off. His guilt will be on him. Okay. What does it mean to be cut off? In the Hebrew, it's karat, killed. Lest Israel would misunderstand in the rest of Numbers, someone goes out to collect wood on the Sabbath day after God had said, you shall not work on the Sabbath day. He gets caught collecting wood. They bring him to Moses. They say, Mo, what should we do with this guy? He's working on the Sabbath day. Moses says, I don't know. Let's seek the Lord. And the Lord says, I already told you what to do. Take him out and kill him. And Israel took him out and killed him. What we need to begin to see is that God has a different perspective on sin than you and I. You and I are very loosey-goosey when it comes to sin. We don't hate sin, we flirt with sin, let's be honest. You see, but God is altogether different. God hates sin. God is absolutely righteous. And in the Old Covenant, there was a sacrificial provision for unintentional sins, but for willful disobedience high-handed sinning, there was no sacrifice. That person was to be cut off. Now, is it possible that Hebrews 10 in the passage before us is saying that there is a willful sin that is unforgivable in the new covenant provision, even as all willful sins were unforgiven in the old covenant provision? Jesus seemed to think so. Jesus said in Mark chapter 3, verses 28 and 29, Truly I say to you, all sin shall be forgiven the sons of men, and whatever blasphemies they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. So there is in the new covenant some exception to forgiveness. And that seems to be exactly what Hebrews chapter 6 was talking about. Again, if you weren't here, you'll want to get those teachings online. Hebrews chapter 6 was teaching once someone has apostatized, that is, denied Jesus Christ, though they previously accepted and confessed Him, if they come to the place where they say, I reject Jesus, I reject His identity, I reject His work on the cross, I reject His resurrection from the dead, I reject His current ministry, I reject Him and His salvation, 
Hebrews 6 seemed to say that that person was lost, that it was impossible for them to be renewed, that that was an unpardonable offense. So then, if we measure Scripture with Scripture, if we keep in mind not only the context, but other texts, we come to these results. The New Testament does seem to teach that there's forgiveness for Christians who still sin. Amen. But there does seem to be an exception according to Jesus. And Hebrews chapter 6 corroborates that, and that just might be what's happening here in Hebrews 10. But before we come to any hasty conclusions, we need to keep the third point in mind. Keep in mind the context, other texts, and the whole text. This is very important. You would be surprised to find how many people are reading through the Bible, come to a difficult thing to comprehend, freak out, and don't keep reading. We don't like that when people, when people do that to us in conversations, do we? You and I are having a conversation. I say something, you don't quite get it. You're like, you're such a jerk. And you just shut off, right? And I'm like, no, 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 wait a minute. Let me explain what I mean. No, I hate you. That's bad communication, right? I've got to be heard out. You might have misunderstood me. Hear me out. Well, hear the Bible out, brothers and sisters. Read the whole text. Keep in mind the context, other texts, and read the whole text. And what we find when we read the whole text is that verse 29 is the key to the interpretation of verse 26. Verse 29 tells us exactly what this willful sinning is and therefore lets us know what it is not. Verse 29 says this, How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has... Here's the sin. Trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace. That is the sin, that willful sin being spoken of in verse 26. It is consistent with the idea of apostasy taught in Hebrews chapter 6, the idea of falling away. We're talking about trampling underfoot the Son of God, regarding as unclean and no good the blood of the Lamb of God, and insulting the Holy Spirit. We're not talking about a sin that one stumbles into suddenly. We're not talking about the normal falterings of a Christian who's still learning to walk in the Spirit and in victory over sin. What we are talking about is drifting into a hard heart and true disbelief and then truly and utterly rejecting Jesus, rejecting the cross, rejecting his sacrifice and rejecting his present high priestly ministry. That's what we're talking about, that outright rejection of the person and the work of Jesus Christ. It is ceasing to believe And again, the context is very clear. We're talking about people who did believe. It is ceasing to believe, ceasing to have faith. We are saved by grace through faith. It's a ceasing to have faith. That is why in the very next breath, the author of Hebrews goes into Hebrews 11, the hall of faith, and this detailed explication of what faith is and how it's worked out in the lives of men and women. The issue is faith. And we're talking about someone who has drifted to the point where their heart has hardened and now they're in disbelief and it has ultimately brought them to apostasy. 
That is a sin. That is the issue at hand. And so the result of looking at the whole text is that the willful sin spoken of in verse 26 is explained in verse 29. It is outright apostasy and it is unpardonable. And this is consistent with Hebrews 6 and perhaps also with Mark 3 where Jesus spoke of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Though that's a contested passage as to the interpretation, but it might be the same thing in mind here. So, just doing a few simple things, keeping in mind the context, other texts, and the whole text, we have a preliminary conclusion as to the meaning of this text. Here's what we think it means. We think that this is a warning to Christians who are in danger of completely rejecting Jesus and their salvation, and that to do so is unforgivable and incurs the wrath of God. So there's a cursory reading of the text. Let's unpack it now in a little more detail. Verse 26 starts with the word for in the English translation. In the original Greek, it is a conjunction gar. What it does grammatically is it connects verse 26 with verse 25. What we have in verse 25 is a warning not to abandon the community of faith. Stick with the community of faith. Do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together as is the habit of some. So we have that exhortation. The Greek conjunction guard, the beginning of verse 26, grammatically connects the two so that that exhortation is followed by this warning. So what it's saying then is that a lack of meeting together could perpetuate the drift that the original audience was already in, which could foster disbelief, which could lead to apostasy. And what we learn by connecting those two verses grammatically and thematically is that perhaps one of the first signs of apostasy in the heart of a Christian is a lack of desire to be with Christians. Because God has designed us to be together. That's His will, that's His purpose, that's His plan. And He says expressly a command, do not neglect the assembling of yourselves together. Don't forsake it, don't abandon it. So we follow the flow of the text now and checking our own hearts, it may be that an early warning of heading in the direction of apostasy is wanting to remove yourself from the community of faith. Now, you guys are in church this morning, so that's probably not you. But we all know people that fit that description, don't we? Once they were among us, once they are with us, now they've removed themselves. I would say to you, according to this text, they are in a place of danger. They're in a place of danger. Maybe you've been that person, and you've been out wandering, and you haven't been connected with the community of faith, and you just happen to show up today. This is your day, dude. This is your text. The question then that everybody's asking is, is this passage really talking about Christians? Because we're talking here about someone becoming an adversary of God and being consumed with fire. Are we really saying that this text is addressing Christians? Well, let's look at a little bit of evidence. First of all, in verse 26, the author uses the pronoun we. 
He includes himself, and clearly he was a Christian. Hello. He includes himself as one who is in need of this warning, that this warning would be applicable to his life as well. So we think that by using that inclusive pronoun we, he's talking to Christians. Furthermore, notice it says, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, Okay, the knowledge of truth, or as some English translations say, receiving the full knowledge of truth. This is very important for our understanding as to why I believe these are Christians. The word there for knowledge is not the normal Greek word for knowledge, gnosis. You've heard that. This is a special word, a compound word, epinosis. Epinosis. Epinosis speaks of clear and exact knowledge. It's more emphatic than gnosis, just regular knowledge, because it expresses, listen, it expresses a more thorough participation on the part of the knower with the object of the knowledge. Okay? So what that means is the word has a connotation of intimate knowledge as opposed to intellectual knowledge. We're not talking about people who have just intellectually agreed that Jesus is the Messiah. We're talking about people who, according to the word, have had a thorough participation in the object of that knowledge, that is, Jesus Christ. And what this word also means is knowledge that has a powerful influence on the knower. A powerful influence. So we're talking about someone who has received epinosis, clear, exact, experiential participatory, transformative knowledge. It's not the non-Christian that comes to the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We're talking about true knowledge of the gospel that changes lives. And so it seems that the phrase, after receiving the knowledge of truth, would certainly seem to indicate Christians. In fact, if you do a study in the New Testament on that phrase, the knowledge of truth, we find that in the New Testament, that is the definer for Christians. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, 28, what? You shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. And over and over in the New Testament, we see true knowledge being possessed as a descriptor for Christians. We see it not, in John, not only in John 8, 32, I said 8, 28, but it's John 8, 32. But we see it in 1 Timothy 2, 4, 1 Timothy 4, 3, 2 Timothy 2, 25, Titus 1, 1, 1 John 2, 21, and 2 John 1. So it would seem then that that phrase in the New Testament, the knowledge of truth, is speaking of Christians. Remember, 2 Timothy said, God desires that none should perish, but all should come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. And the word receive there, having received that knowledge, means to take hold of and to apprehend, to understand and to perceive. And notice it's in the past tense here in verse 26. After receiving the knowledge. So we're talking about people who have already received, apprehended, taken hold of an intimate, experiential, participatory, transformative knowledge of the truth. We're talking about Christians. That fits with the grammar. That fits with the context. That fits with the text. Perhaps the strongest evidence from the text that this text is addressed to Christians is found in verse 29. Look in verse 29 again. 
How much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded his unclean? Look, the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified. So the person that's now trampling underfoot the Son of God and regarding his unclean, the blood of the covenant, had previously been sanctified by that blood. Who is sanctified by the blood of Jesus but Christians? He had been, he was, past tense, sanctified by the very blood that he now rejects. So it seems very clear to me that we have Christians here who are being spoken of sinning willfully and that there are dire results to that. Now, again, sinning willfully is defined for us in verse 29. Trampling underfoot the Son of God considering as unclean the blood of the covenant and insulting the Holy Spirit. And that is consonant with, consistent with other warnings in the book of Hebrews. What does it say in Hebrews 3.12? Take care, brethren, that there not be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart that falls away from the living God. Same idea, ceasing to believe. And again, Hebrews 6, for in the case of those who have once been enlightened, and have tasted of a heavenly gift, and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. Speaking of outright apostasy, not mere backsliding, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance, since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put Him to open shame. So we're talking about here people who have, through drifting developed a hardness of heart which has yielded in them a certain amount of disbelief which left uncorrected can lead to apostasy which leads to ruin and the wrath of God. Notice that sinning willfully is in the present continuous tense meaning it's not something they're repenting of. It wasn't a one-time doubt. We all have those. It wasn't a crisis of faith those are common to us. We're talking about persistent denial of Christ and his work. And I want us to note very carefully how it comes about because the book of Hebrews lays it out in black and white. It starts with drifting, which leads to hardness of heart, which will always lead to disobedience, which will always yield an even harder heart Please don't be in the place in life where you are regularly saying no to God. Understand what happens when you say no to God. Every time you say no to God, there is a callousing that happens to your heart. There is a searing that happens to your conscience. Your heart becomes harder and it becomes more and more dull to the things of God. You want to cultivate a life that says, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord. You want to have that type of life. And what that yields in you is a soft and supple and pliable and yielded heart to God. But you see, the drifter is one who says no to God, which yields a hardness of heart which left uncorrected will birth disbelief in our lives, which if not corrected can possibly lead to apostasy, which means ruin and the wrath of God. It says explicitly in verse 26, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, 
there once was Jesus Christ applicable to the life of that person. But after this type of sinning, rejecting Jesus and his salvation, that person is without hope. Verse 27 says what's coming. A certain terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. That's just not a fun verse. I'll tell you why it's not fun. Because we all know people that are in this danger. And someone asked me after the last service, what do I do? They name the person. I know this guy. Da, da, da. He's outright rejected Jesus Christ. What am I to do? My pastoral response is never stop praying. Never stop loving never stop sharing, never stop witnessing to them. Leave the final, final, final up to God. Only he knows the heart. He's the only righteous judge. You pray your guts out for him or her. You keep loving him. You keep pursuing. You keep putting the gospel out there. Leave the end result up to Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. This is a horrible verse though because it speaks of someone who was a friend of God becoming an adversary of God. It's an incredibly sobering thought. It's an allusion to Isaiah chapter 26, verses 10 through 11, which says, Though the wicked is shown favor, he does not learn righteousness. He deals unjustly in the land of uprightness and does not perceive the majesty of the Lord. O Lord, your hand is lifted up, yet they don't see it. They see your zeal for your people, and they're put to shame. Indeed, fire will devour your enemies." It's very important that whenever you encounter in the New Testament a quote of the Old Testament, that you go back and look at that Old Testament passage in context. Know this, that when New Testament writers employed the Old Testament under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit in their documents, they were not only quoting little portions, they were alluding to the context. Because generally we have a Hebraic Hebrew context in the New Testament. And the original recipients, many of them, were very familiar with the Old Testament. And it was a rabbinic and scribal form of teaching that when you wanted to bring to mind a whole vignette, a whole story, a whole context from the Old Testament, you would say a few lines and the little Hebrew heart that had been trained in Scripture would know the full picture. And so when you see in the New Testament, the Old Testament quoted, you want to go look at it in context, it'll help you to understand what the New Testament passage is saying. And when you look at Isaiah 26 in context, it's talking about those who have rejected the Lord. They've rejected the Lord. And it says, indeed, fire will devour your enemies. Now, this is speaking of the final judgment, which takes place sometime after the coming of the Lord. And the Bible is clear that fire somehow is involved in this judgment. It's sobering. Isaiah 66, starting in verse 15. Behold, the Lord will come in fire and his chariots like the whirlwind to render his anger with fury and his rebuke with flames of fire. For the Lord will execute judgment by fire and by his sword on all flesh and those slain by the Lord will be many. Then they will go forth and look on the corpses of men who have transgressed against me for their worm will not die and their fire will not be quenched. That's horrible. And yet that's familiar because those last two lines, their worm will not die and the fire will not be quenched were used by Jesus in Mark 9.44 to explain hell. 
Jesus taught that hell is a real place. He said that it's outer darkness, that it's weeping, that it's gnashing of teeth, that there's a worm that never dies and a fire that's never quenched. I don't know what that means, but it doesn't sound good. I don't think we can necessarily scare people into heaven, but I think we ought to scare people out of hell. Hell is a reality. It involves fire and judgment. Zephaniah 1, sorry, in verse 17. I will bring distress on men so that they will walk like the blind because they have sinned against the Lord and their blood will be poured out like dust and their flesh like dung. Neither their silver nor their gold will be able to save them on the day of the Lord's wrath. And all the earth will be devoured in the fire of his jealousy, for he will make a complete end, indeed a terrifying one, of all the inhabitants of the earth. I hate reading these verses. But they're there. It's the wrath of God. And the church errs by not talking about wrath. You see, there's no good news unless there's bad news. And the gospel is good news in response to the bad news that we deserve the wrath of God, that it is real, that it is eternal. But the good news is that Jesus Christ draped himself in humanity, was born a virgin this Christmas season, grew up, lived a sinless, perfect life, died on the cross to pay the price for my sins, for your sins, conquered sin, death, and the devil through his resurrection from the dead, has ascended to the Father, ever lives to make intercession for us, and is coming again to set up a kingdom of righteousness. The good news is so good, so poignant, when the wrath is understood. Again, Second Thessalonians 1, 7 and 8. When the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. And finally, Revelation 20 and the final judgment starting verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is a second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. The author of Hebrews has no problem employing the reality of the wrath of God to scare these Christians into getting right. They're drifting. They're in error. They're going awry. And he's got no problem telling them what is at the end of that road should they follow it all the way the wrath of God. You cannot escape the wrath of God if you handle accurately the Bible. It's in there from the beginning to the end. It's a common theme in the Old Testament and the New. People are judged in accordance with their wicked deeds. Job 34, Psalm 62, Proverbs 24, Ezekiel 7. There's no escape for those who have turned away from God. Job 11, Proverbs 1, Jeremiah 11, Hebrews 2. Jesus also emphasized God's judgment in his teaching in Matthew 5, Matthew 16, Matthew 23, and Matthew 25. Yes, he came preaching the good news of the kingdom, but he spoke frequently of the wrath of God. And the theme is common throughout the entire New Testament. And here's what's profound. God never apologizes for his wrath because he is right and righteous. He is right 
and righteous in all of his judgments. So he never apologizes for his wrath. You see, what the Bible says is that God is not to be trifled with. What does verse 31 in front of us say? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Here's a disconnect, brothers and sisters. We take sin very lightly. God doesn't. That's the disconnect. We take sin very lightly. If you're anything like me, you don't always hate sin. In fact, sometimes you pursue sin. You make provision to sin. You look for an opportunity to sin. This is wrong. Fear of the Lord is to hate sin. We need a right perspective on sin. Just because sin is very easy and you're very laissez-faire and nonchalant about it, don't make the fatal mistake of thinking that God is that way. Don't make God in your perverted image. He's not like you. You were made in His image, but He is a righteous and a holy God. And His character is demands wrath and yet it dictates love and the good news is that God is love yes he has a wrath but God is love yes there is justice but he is merciful and he saves us by grace through faith and Jesus Christ died on the cross and God is wishing that none would perish that none would experience his wrath but all would come to everlasting life that's the heart of God Don't miss that. Point of application for you and I, though, who are trying to walk through this life, is asking ourselves, how do you view sin? How do you view sin? I think we need to be very sober about that. And I think if we're taking sin too lightly, we need to correct ourselves. We need to get into the Word of God, and we need to get into some accountability. Because too laissez-faire of an approach on sin can lead to drifting and a hardened heart and disbelief and apostasy. Know the Lord and you'll start to hate sin. You really will. You'll hate sin, you'll love people more. How do you tell if someone really, really knows the Lord? Oh, they hate sin, but they really love people because they're just like Jesus. And you see, what God wants to do is lovingly awake people who are in the drift right now. He wants to wake people up who are in the drift at this moment. He wants to shake their cages. He wants to rattle them to attention. He wants to get their attention. Maybe you're here this morning. You know you've been drifting. You can look at a time in your life when you were more intimate with Jesus, more on fire than you are right now. Then my brother, my sister, by definition, you are backslidden. Not apostate, but you are backslidden. You're not where you once were. Brothers, get right today. Sisters, get right today. Are you drifting? Are you saying no to God? The book of Hebrews says we ought not to do so. Verse 28, anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. And then in verse 29 again, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? He takes a usual rabbinic method 
and argues from the lesser to the greater. The lesser being the old covenant. He says, listen, in verse 27, in verse 28, excuse me, when people ignored the old covenant, they were dealt with according to that covenant. They were held accountable for ignoring it. And then he says, how much more the people who disregard Jesus Christ. He assumes that in their Hebraic minds, they would agree with the argument from the lesser in verse 28. The setting aside the law of Moses deserved punishment. And so how much more the setting aside of Jesus Christ? Because remember, the law was only a shadow. But Jesus is the reality. He's a substance. The old covenant was just a sign on a signpost that looked forward to someone better, Jesus Christ. And yet God held people accountable for how they dealt with that old covenant, even though it was just a sign on a signpost. How much more will he hold those accountable who trample underfoot the Son of God? What does that mean? Trample underfoot was a common phrase both in classical Greek literature and in the Old Testament as an image of utter contempt. Talking about those who have contempt for Jesus Christ. We're not talking about merely turning away, but abusively and blatantly crushing with disdain the Son of God. This is not weakness of personality. This is willful rejection. What does it mean that they have regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant? That word unclean means unholy, common, defiled. In Levitical phraseology, ceremonially unpure, not worthy for a sacrifice. In other words, they consider the blood of Jesus Christ to be just like the blood of anybody else. Defiled, impure, meaningless, not worthy, not able to atone for sins. By which they were sanctified. Talking about Christians who had previously had their consciences cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ, who regarded themselves as forgiven, and now they reject this very blood which paid their price. And in doing so, they have finally insulted the Spirit of grace. When you trample underfoot the Son of God and regard as unholy, defiled, and common the blood of the covenant, then you have insulted the Spirit of grace. And in classical Greek literature, it carries the idea of mocking with disdain. The Spirit of grace. Grace being the poignant word there. God is a God of grace. And He draws us by grace. He draws us with loving kindness. He draws us with cords of kindness, the Bible says, because He's a God of grace. And the Holy Spirit is a spirit of grace. But when you reject the work and the blood and the person of Jesus Christ, then you insult, you mock with disdain the Holy Spirit. And this is perhaps the equivalent of what Jesus called blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. And He said, that sin shall not be forgiven. Verse 30 says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again the Lord will judge his people. He's reminding them, we know him, meaning you know the character of God. A key component of the character of God is that he has a negative attitude towards sin. Understatement. God has a negative attitude towards sin. So don't be surprised when he says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, and the Lord will judge his people. 
He's quoting there from Deuteronomy 32, the famous song of Moses. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. The historical Hebraic or Jewish interpretation of that was, don't take revenge for yourself, leave it to the Lord. And Paul employs it that same way in Romans chapter 12, verse 19. But here the meaning and the application is explicit. Ain't nobody getting away with nothing. You reject Jesus Christ like that, and God will deal with you. Verse 31 says, horrifically, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Brothers and sisters, we need to preach the gospel. We need to become evangelists in our community. We need to become truth speakers in our families, within our sphere of influence, and our workplaces. When Christians are going awry, we need to speak the truth in love. We need to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. And when somebody is outright rejecting Jesus Christ, we need to do everything that we can to convince them along with and in partnership with the Holy Spirit of sin, righteousness, and judgment. And Christology, the correct identity of the person of Jesus Christ because it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And then to finish, he comes with a warm encouragement just as he did in Hebrews 6. And the author says in verse 32, but remember the former days when after being enlightened, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners and accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has great reward." He ends by encouraging them. He says, here is what apostasy looks like and it is horrific, but you guys are going to do better than that. I know that you're going through a difficult time, but you've been here before. Remember the old days when just after you were enlightened, you had just become believers and you had a tremendous conflict and your property was being removed and you were being made a public spectacle and some were being imprisoned. You endured it with joy. You clung to Jesus Christ. You kept an attitude of worship and praise. You didn't throw away your confession of faith or your confidence in the cross, but you clung to it. You maintained, you persevered, you held fast to the anchor of your soul and God saw you through. You guys did so well then. I know you could do it again. That's what he's saying to them. You can do it again. Yes, I've got to give you this warning, he says. It's the wrath of God for apostasy, but you can hold fast. Cling to Jesus. Don't throw away your confidence. You've done so well in the past. And to finish, and by way of point of application, we need to ask ourselves, have we done so well in the past? And are you doing well now? Were you at your best with Christ at some other point in time? Need to be at your best with Jesus right now, dude. That's the way it goes. Need to be at your best with Jesus Christ right now. More on fire, more in love, more near, more involved, more engaged, more committed, more yielded, more surrendered than ever before. That's the call for the Christian. From glory to glory, he takes us. And you know what? What he said about his audience, I say about my audience today. You guys are going to be all right. 
You guys are doing good. You've been through some stuff. Jesus has brought you through. Cling to Jesus. You don't got to sweat this warning. You're not going that way. Maybe some of you have been drifting a little bit today. Get right. Get on your face today. Repent and get close to Jesus Christ. You're going to be okay. But we all know others who aren't doing so well, who are in real danger of what has been spoken of, don't we? We know people like this who are drifting, who have hardened their hearts, who are cultivating a lifestyle of saying no to God. You know what we need to do? We need to pray for them. We need to pray for them right now because this warning is for real. We need to pray for them. We need to pray that they'd come to their senses and come home. That they wouldn't get to that place of disbelief and apostasy. That right now the Holy Spirit of God, wherever they are, would wake them up and they come to their senses and say, my God is so good, what the heck am I doing? And come home. We need to pray that. So church, let's do it. Let's be a church that prays. This is a house of prayer for all the nations. Grab your spouse, grab your kids, grab your family, turn around to the people, pray. Begin to pray, church. You all know people. If it's you, just tell the person next to you, I'm that cheese ball. Pray for me. (laughs) Be humble. Be transparent. But let's pray, church. Don't chit-chat. Get down to business. Grab each other and pray right now.